This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now on Food FM, you're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. Caroline and her guests make sense of the world through food, from politics to farming, making and cooking. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Hello, I'm Caroline Kenyon, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to the latest edition of Bread and Butter. And my guest today is an acclaimed author, broadcaster, presenter, food writer, Alex Renton, who has written about all sorts of different subjects. But there's a kind of theme that runs through them all, whether it's about boarding schools, dare I say it, or about food, but it's about humankind and and us as animals at the centre of it. And his latest book is about food and the foods that shape our world, 13 foods that shape our world, no less. And I wonder if there's a significance in the number 13. Alex, welcome. Hi, Caroline. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's an, it is a, a delight. Alex, tell me a little bit about the, the origin of this book. Is this something that's been bubbling away in your mind for some years? Yes, in the sense that, I, I mean, you mentioned I've done various journalistic jobs, but the only one I've ever really wanted to do was be a food writer. <laughs> I just had to fill in the gaps when, with other jobs as well. But um, I, I, one of my most fun sort of uh, periods as a food writer was, was sort of in the early 2000s when uh, the Observer newspaper and Nicola Gill uh, launched this wonderful magazine, Observer Food Monthly, where where uh, where Nicola rather brilliantly would put sort of celebrity chef interviews on one page, and then food adventure exploration anthropology on the next, and and I would kind of do a lot of those pieces. So under in those years, I used to do things like I went to Cambodia to write about what how you catered for a wedding in one of the world's poorest countries and what people, what kids in slums were eating in various cities across the world and and uh, yeah, wall correspondent food things and and it was I realised then I was working for Oxfam at the time that you know I had to write a lot of things about poverty and so on but the, it's far far more interesting in Gaza or, or wherever, to, to not to say to people, how are you and how are you doing, but to, to say, what did you eat last night? And why did you eat it? And how did you cook it? And what did your children really want? Because that's a universal and, and lets you into something we all understand, which is both the worry of, about getting food and, and the joy of food. Wonderful. What a, what a sort of, I, you're, you're evoking um, such a great picture of the kind of uh, pieces that you were writing, Alex. And I have to say that as a former journalist myself, I'm feeling a few pangs of envy. They sound like really wonderful, um, deep, 
veins to mine. It was so, such a cool job, Caroline. I was, uh, for a while, I was called Asia Food Correspondent for the Observer Food Monthly. <laughs> so well, it's a lovely job. I'm, I'm sort of sighing with envy here, definitely. <laughs> so just bring us up to this collaboration with the food programme. I mean, anybody who's interested in food obviously knows of the, you know, the magnificent Sheila Dillon and, and the brilliant San... Dan Saladino. So tell me how this, this book arose. And again, I'm intrigued by this, you know, the 13 foods that shape our world. Yes, well, let's do that first. Uh, so 13 foods that shape our world. I have to admit that, uh, maybe don't tell the publishers I told you this, but there was a big meeting with the BBC market people and the publisher. And they, and I was going, well, I think it could be 12 or it could be 10. And, and this guy popped up and said, we find 13 gets more clicks when we put it in our lists on the website. <laughs> we all went, why? And they went, because everyone thinks 12 or 10, you're just rounding up. But if it's 13, 13 ways to please your lover or whatever, it's really, it's much more interesting. So I went, okay, fine, 13. And that made it sort of easier because I, I had more, I could have done 20 sort of thing. So that's, uh, but they are 13 carefully selected um, foods though. Um, the food program. I, I mean, I, I, you know, back before, you know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm old enough to remember before Sheila Dillon and, and Derek Cooper doing it. Uh, Sheila was his producer first, but um, and and Derek Cooper's books. You know, I well remember. You know, when I was a kid, that his Bad Food Guide, which is, you know, around the time of Elizabeth David, was the first you know really funny critical book about British catering. I remember that sitting. You know, it was it was a with its funny cover of flies flying around a, a, a plate of bangers and mash but that you know it has been the soundtrack to my life as a, as a domestic cook that program you know as a young man when I first you know started cooking for people in, in my you know in my flat um, it that was on in the background and 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 as a journalist it it just always chimed with me that the the the, the, those those you know why what's fun to eat and why are we eating it is just a, a key question and for me it's it's some of the greatest of, of bbc journalism is sort of epitomized in what uh, sheila and dan and 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 a lot of interesting news presenters do uh, and i i've um always treasured it um you know it's you know it, that it's critical and sometimes fearless and also you discover things uh, so when when they decided to do their first sort of spin-off book and Sheila came along and said, would you be interested? I was just incredibly flattered. I mean, you know, I have been on the programme a couple of times, but you know, it's, that's sort of a real accolade for any food writer. Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is the gold standard of food broadcasting. I think, um, I mean, we'll, we'll get into the meat of the book in a moment, but I mean, one of the things that I love about the food programme, but also about your book, is that you take food away from being a niche issue and you place it right at the centre. Because for me, um, you know, I'm one of the co-founders of Food FM and, you know, our strapline is um, changing the world through food, but mm. also telling food stories from around the world. And I have a number of other food-related projects that I run. But for me, I see almost all of life and the world through the prism of food. And I think yep. that's one of the reasons why I love your book is that you place food right at the heart of things. And it's not something that's, you know, just one of, I don't know, 10, 10 items on a checklist that, you know, we, where we might consider the world. Is that how you see your book? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think uh, for me, it, and that goes back to 
working with Oxfam in the disaster relief and so on is that if you address people's food needs, you start at the, you know, the very basics of, of what unites us as humanity, really. I mean, there, there are only three or four things that we all do and all get pleasure from. And also the, the fact that, because food is a good lens of looking at not just our culture and our society, which is sort of obvious, but, but also about economics, about the way the world's progressing, about geography, about history and so on. If you start with the food lens, it's a bit like those actors who say you must start a character with, by choosing which shoes he would wear. But if you, for me, if you start by looking at a society or a person and say, how do you eat and what do you eat and why do you eat it? That's how you begin. I love that analogy. I shall remember that one. I might even borrow it with your permission. So, um, Alex, it must have been a struggle to come up with your definitive list of 13 foods. Tell me about that. Yeah, kind of. I, I mean, it, it clearly, you know, I determined to write a book that hoped to em emulate what a food programme episode does, which is entertain, inform, uh, perhaps get a little bit angry about things that need sorted out, um, and and even provide a recipe. So so every food we, we chose is, is one which has played and continues to play a very significant role in human not just nutrition, but politics and economics, geoeconomics. And we had to, and every one of them is historically interesting, and every one of them is going to be really intriguing as this difficult century progresses and we look at the job of feeding 10 billion people in climate change. So that, that, that was the beginning of the filter. Uh, under that, you were kind of going, well, let's not do wheat alone, let's do bread because almost every, every culture has a form of, of leavened, leavened dough that they eat and treasure as well. Um, and it uses different types of grains. And that's kind of more interesting. I mean, there are single issue, single foods. I mean, rice is one in there and, and salt is another. But, um, but sometimes we've sort of gone for compound foods because, because it works better that way. But you know, trying to make it fun to read um, it, it is, is pretty important. But that's true of any journalism. Absolutely. It is immensely readable, Alex. I have hugely Thank enjoyed you. it. And just for our, our listeners who've not yet uh, had the pleasure of reading, I'm just going to uh, whistle through the, the foods that you talk about. Bread, salt, oil and fat, dairy, sugar, potato, chicken, spice, tomato, rice, banana, soy and cocoa. I mean, that is, that's pretty comprehensive. I did have, I had a couple of thoughts of ones I might have popped in, but of course, that, whether 15 foods that shape our world would have had the same number of clicks is uh, obviously <laughs> Well, it's debatable. an odd number. It's an odd number. Yeah. So which the one, tell me which ones you enjoyed writing most. Well, I, I read the things that were most fun to write were the things I knew least about, really. I, 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 so, you know, there's some things like, you know, I spent quite a lot of time when I was working in Asia, looking at rice and, and rice culture and how people use it. You know, it, it is gripping how differently people use rice when you know, it's what they eat as, as their primary staple. But no, so areas where I really was quite ignorant. I mean, it, so in the spices and pepper, it's mainly hot spices chapter. You know, I, I was really, the story of um, chilies, uh, incredibly rapid spread after 1492 and the Spanish conquistadors came across it in Central America and, and you know and it's moved to be a, a global food food took about 70 years um, it, it's big in, in in Asia that quickly whereas potatoes took about two centuries to catch on and so did tomatoes um, after we, we looted them from um, 
the Americas. But I, but I had a lot of fun with spices, not least um, looking at spices that we've forgotten or, or ones that have gone out of fashion. Um, spikenard is an example. So your, your Tudor ancestors wouldn't have liked a cake if it didn't have spikenard in it. And I came across something wonderful called Silphium of Cyrene, which is, you know, a, this legend, now legendary, Herb spice, the most delicious, interesting, fascinating spice of all time, according to Roman writers like Catullus. But none of us will ever know what it's, it tasted like because the evil Emperor Nero, um, who fiddled while Rome burned, ate all the silphium. He ate literally the last silphium plant to be found in North Africa. So that's an example of the first thing to go extinct because of human greed. Goodness, what a horrifically vivid picture you paint. That is really sort of shocking and disappointing. But also, I suppose, sort of ignites our imagination and we think, what would it have tasted what like? I mean, are, exactly. are there written descriptions of it? There's very little, very little. I, I mean, I mean, there's descriptions of how expensive it was and how much in demand it was and... and and indeed, <laughs> Nero's happy munching of the last frond. But, but what it actually tasted like? I mean, it's some sort of mixture between um, clove and, um, and, I don't know, cocoa. <laughs> and that, that's another interesting chapter, cocoa. Yes, course, absolutely. Yeah. So one of the, I, I wondered about coffee and or tea. Were they on your initial long list? They're drinks, Caroline. They're not foods. Oh, that's how I'm yes, going to wriggle suppose. out of that one. Yeah, no, fair enough. <laughs> You, you'll find it's funny how many people have said that actually uh yes i mean it would have put uh, i'm one of the most tricky ones and again but for me fascinating because i love um you know, i love foods that that shape the world it, it was doing salt because salt you, you know i mean a lot a lot of us are aware that salt was one of the first globally traded food products really from very early european enslavement of africans in an organized you know where modern way starts with um, the Portuguese taking West African people to work salt pans uh, uh, off, off in the Cape Verde Islands um, entirely so British and other ships could pick up salt there, sail it to the northwestern, northeastern um, Atlantic and hand it over to, to ships um, catching cod. To, to trade back again to Europe. So this, this salt's incredibly important role in some of the early trading fortunes of Northern Europeans in enslavement in, in, in all sorts of um, big issues that still trouble us now. It, it, it has gripped me, absolutely gripped me. And of course, the other thing, but sorry, without banging on too much, the other no, thing about salt. No, it's fascinating. Well, well, the other thing, the brilliant thing about salt is, I mean, you know, I probably, you and I probably have four or five different types of salts in our cupboard. We might even have a vanilla flavoured one from Halen Mon. But salt is the same chemical, whether you put it on the road or whether you have it in crystal, in flake form in, in a beautiful container from um, the salt marshes of the Gironde. In a, a, so it, it's a very simple chemical. I mean, you can talk about trace elements and so on, but no scientist takes those very seriously. And you can buy it for £50 a tonne or £450,000 a tonne, depending on the label on it. I think that's what marketing is all about, branding and marketing. Uh, and that's what a lot of our foods are about yes. as well. And always happy. I thought I found that you know what you were just saying about the involvement of salt in the the slave trade is mm. you know again fascinating but so dispiriting and I think often one's one's attitude towards foods can be changed by the knowledge of its history but I mean, as it, as with sugar 
I'm a, a London expat who moved from London to North Lincolnshire, and a lot of our friends are, are farmers, and they, they grow sugar beet. And I now, yes. lo- I mean, actually, we eat very little sugar at home, like lots of health-aware middle-aged people. But um, I do try and buy English sugar. It does, yes. I, there's something lowering about, well, you know, for all, there are all the environmental reasons about not bringing sugar across from... Uh, far what? afield, but also just the the associations of it are not comfortable, are they? There's a historic taint, which is utter, you know, unavoidable. I, I, I mean, it's a really interesting one. I mean, it, you know, and one of the things that people like you and I, who are now not eating sugar or eating sugar only locally grown, or because of you know, it, it's appalling health toll uh, and, and role in diabetes and obesity and so on. People like us. Uh, were not eating sugar in 1820 um, as a protest against what was being done to African people in the Caribbean to produce it. Uh, I mean, there there are leaflets saying, I mean, uh, middle-class lady committees would go around saying boycott sugar before it is tainted with Africans' blood. So sugar's been a, a matter of argument and lust and terrible greed and genocide, really, uh, since we started to mass produce it in the early 18th century. Um, very tainted, still totally ubiquitous, though. I mean, for all that you and I say we don't eat sugar, it's very hard to avoid. No, it is, absolutely. It's, um, interesting, you, you were talking about the, um, the, the ladies' committees, because um, I was actually talking to... Uh, a friend about slavery at the weekend, and 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 he said, you know, we, we shouldn't, be, you know, be judging people then by the, you know, through the prism of our own views now. But <laughs> as far as I understand it, there was an anti-slavery movement almost from the moment that slavery, as we know of it in modern the modern world, began. Yes, I, I think. I, well, I, I I have written about this separately. I have some ancestors who were enslavers in Jamaica and Tobago, uh, and. You know, it was perfectly clear that by the 1790s, you know, it was an issue a bit like Brexit. It, I mean, half of Britain was totally against slavery and petitioning Parliament in hundreds of thousands to stop it. Mm. I don't think those people, my ancestors, and I've read their letters, weren't very different in moral outlook or education from what we, from how we are today. And they were greedy. They were Christians. They were greedy, and they found ways to justify uh, enslaving black people to mm. produce the sugar that they made their fortune on. Yes. It is, as you say, greedy. It is always ultimately yeah. about money and power. It is. It's interesting. And, and, I mean, but, but, and this is, again, you know, I think this runs through the book, you know, that there's a tension between greed and pricing and quality and you know, bad, re- bad industrial retail versus good localised and planet-friendly and animal-friendly retail. I, I think one, one, the, there's a chapter in, called Dairy in which I deal with everything from, obviously, dairy, dairy farming through, through to white, what they called white meats, um, the, you know, which fed the poor, as the author Karen N. Steele, who I know has been on your programme, points out. So it's through the early, whole early urbanisation age. And, and, and all the moral arguments around dairy uh, that have always existed, uh, from quality and animal welfare through to damage done to to the planet and the environment are still just as current as they were then. And also that fact that dairy farming kind of shapes the way a lot of the rural England that we treasure and love looks today, structurally. Yes, it's interesting. uh, This morning I was recording a programme about um, 
afternoon tea and, and cream teas. Mm. And actually, although uh, afternoon tea seems to date back to about the 20th century uh, invention, yeah. but there's so much sort of mythology and romance that we we weave around these things that people yes. think, oh, it's been going for hundreds of years and, you know, people were Morris dancing in 1230 and then sitting down to a cream yes. tea. Well, it's absolutely nonsense. No, that's right. But, but, but the, the sort of, uh, sort of rural bucolic lore around, um, I mean, L-O-R-E, around yes. dairy is really fascinating. I, I'm, I got very gripped by the role of women well obviously the role of women in agricultural production is always interesting but but around dairy particularly where you know in the traditional dairy farm you know the sort of thomas hardy dairy farm tessa the d'urbervilles the dairy maid is you know her role is is both both sort of very menial but also absolutely crucial there's also a whole load of law around witchcraft and menstruation and so on about when and how butter can be made which both sort of exploits the women and and, and abuses them but also may you know kind of builds them up as well and and you get down to the the dairy maid songs the songs that were sung in order to get the right rhythm for the butter to come to, to churn in, in in the in the barrel uh, there's a wonderful lost law of both exploitation and empowerment of of, of working class rural women that is so interesting. Alex, thank you so much. I've, I've loved uh, our little um, canter around your fascinating book. Do you think you might write it in the same way by, you know, let's say you were commissioned again in 2050? Would it have the same 13 foods in it? It's interesting because I think looking at it, the 13 now would have been the same at pretty much at the beginning of the century. Not not tomatoes. We weren't very big into, into tomatoes um, 100 years ago, but uh, the beginning of the last century, I mean. But looking forward, I think that all might change hugely. I mean, soya is really the only food that's appeared in my list that, that is of, of the late 20th century as, as a sort of global food, um, but partly because it's shoved into so many basic um, pre-prepped foods. Um, but looking forward, we know we're facing challenges that we haven't known since at least the Industrial Revolution. Uh, what? Who knows how we're going to feed these 10 billion people who will be on the planet by 2050, and whether whether eating dairy and really planet damaging products like that is going to go on being either morally feasible or feasible for any but the very rich. Now that's a matter of great personal regret. I love my cheese and I love my a little bit of beef every now and then as well. But no, I think we're seeing big changes to come. That list will change. Yes, I think you're right. I think uh, like the, the spice that you mentioned, which um, the Emperor Nero gobbled up the very last one, you know, it might be that, you know, by 2050, people will be reading about this thing called cheese or this thing called beef and thinking, I wonder what that tasted like. That's a terrible thought. <laughs> I'm afraid it might be possible. It's possible, but let's live yeah. in hope. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you, Caroline. That was fun. You're listening to Bread and Butter with Caroline Kenyon. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com.